Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, I, uh, I forgot my iPad today, so I'm going to do my phone on my Bible. I mean, my Bible on my phone. Can you see it? Yeah, I see it there. Yeah. Um, always somebody. Well, I know I would have the same. Trying to find the passage I want to mention here. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have, I'm, there's a passage I want to look at first before we go into um, our lesson today. Um, I'm looking at, for the passage of Jesus calming the storm. Um, Trying to think of where it is and, uh. That's what happens when you get older. You just sort of forget. Here it is. Here it is. I got it. 14. Matthew 14. 22. Um, you know, as we're going through the uh, prayer requests, you know, this, this particular passage hit me a little bit. Um, and I find myself thinking about a couple, a few times the past couple years. So I think about, you know, what's going on in the world and even personally what's going on in life in general. Of course, we have the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 where Christ feeds 5,000 men, probably adding in women and children, probably up to about 20,000 people possibly, quite a few, at least. And it wasn't exactly 5,000, that was a round number, but there was a lot. And you got to understand, in those days, this was like big, big stuff. To feed 5,000 people, that's a lot of food. In a subsistence culture, right? I mean, basically, you worked all day for the food you ate that day. So this is not, it's not like you had Sam's Club, you go down and stock up. All right? He fed them all. And I said they were filled up. They were foddered up all the way. They couldn't eat anymore. Couldn't eat another bite. And immediately he uh, made the disciples get into a boat and go before him on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. It's verse 22. So Christ is going to shoo the crowds away. And he sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. Why is that? Well, what are the crowds thinking about right now? Hey, this is great. We'll have breakfast tomorrow. How many people? And they wanted to make him king. Hey, this is great. Free food. I mean, the ultimate welfare state. And, of course, Christ has to cool the jets of the disciples. So he wants to get them out of there. And it says, after he dismissed the crowd, what did he do? He went up to the mountain to pray. Why did he do that? To talk to the Lord, to Commune with the Father. Wait a minute, he's God. He doesn't need to talk to the Father. He is God. Well, just go with this, right? In his incarnation, what was Christ's great desire to, to do? To talk to the Father. To commune with the Father. And when evening was come, he was there by himself, but the boat by this time was a long way from land. Beaten by the waves, the wind was against him. So what happens? A little storm comes up. And uh, they're in this little boat out in the middle of Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And the fourth watch of the night, that was pretty late into the night. I think that's towards the early morning. Yeah, that's quite a bit. That's, that's right in the middle of the night. They were terrified. Now, stop and think about that. What kind of guys were in the boat? What they do for a living? Fishermen. If fishermen are afraid of their lives, what does that mean? It's a bad storm. This is not, you know, your little rocking back and forth. You know, this was bad. They, 
they were afraid. They were terrified, it says. They were scared to death. And um, they saw Jesus walking on the water to them. Not freak you out a little bit because normally you don't walk on water unless it's frozen. He's walking out on water to them. And uh, they said, it's a ghost. It's a spirit. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart as I do not be afraid. So he speaks to them and they say, oh, wait a minute, it's Jesus. And Peter said, well, Lord, if it's you, let me come out and uh, to you on the water. Christ says, of course, what does he say? Yeah, come on. How many times has Peter walked on the water in his life? None. So he got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now immediately what happens is a lot of people rag on Peter saying, what's wrong with him? You know, no faith, you know, what's the matter? Because what does he do? He looks around. Took his eyes off Jesus and, what am I doing out here? And he begins to sink. And it's easy to look at Peter and say, what's the matter with him? If I was there, well, I'll tell you what I would have done if I was there. I'd have stayed in the freaking boat. I wouldn't have gotten out and walked on the water. I would have stayed in the boat. You know, before you rag on Peter, there's 11 other guys sitting in the boat. That's right. Don't, yeah, don't try to revise history making you the hero. It doesn't work. All right? Right. Yeah. You know, it's easy to go. Yeah. It's easy to look back in history and say, well, if I was at that point in history, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, how do you know that? You don't. I like what they said. If you're not exceptional now, what makes you think you're going to be exceptional? Well, remember what Peter said Lord, I won't deny you. Christ said, yeah, by the time morning rolls around, it's going to be three times. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the Bible says that if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Pride goeth before a fall and the Holy Spirit before destruction. So you say, I would never have done that. Uh, you don't know that. Probably you would have done the same thing. So my point is Peter was actually exceptional. He was exceptional in the sense that he at least got out of the boat right. and was going to, you know, let's check this thing out. And as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, what happened? But as soon as he started looking around saying, what in the world is going on here, what happened? But you had done the same thing, though. Once I got out, I looked at him, then I realized I'm walking on water, I looked around to see, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 let's not rag on Peter too much, because if I would have been out on the boat walking on the water, saying, what am I doing out here? These waves are big, and the water's deep. All right. And what does he do? He starts looking around. He starts looking at the wind and the waves and he begins to sink. And what's he do? Lord, save me. And you know what I love about Christ here? He didn't say, now nah, go ahead and sink you, O ye of little faith. What did Christ do? Grab his hand. He did not chide Peter. He did not say, what's wrong with you? He reached down and he picked him up. It's interesting. Christ had called the seas earlier in his ministry with them. He was going across the sea and he was sleeping in the boat. Yeah. And it came up and they were all worried and he called it. And it's, 
Oh, ye of little faith. Yeah. They were the oh ye of little faith gang. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't scold him. He just reminded him. Wait a minute, Peter. Wait. All right. And um, so I thought about. Yeah. If it's you, let me come out. Yeah, come on out. But as I thought about that, you know, it's like we got a lot of wind and waves out there, don't we? Look around us in the world, and you know, there's chaos, and even our own personal lives, there's these challenges we have, and those challenges we have, and then you've got Russia, Ukraine, China, this and that, and or even our own governments running amok and everything, and it's easy to do what? Take your eyes off Jesus. And start looking around at the wind and the waves. And saying, what in the world is going on? And when you do, what happens? You start to sink a little bit. And what we need to do is ask the Lord, Lord, save me and help me to keep my eyes on you. There's enough wind and waves out there, really. And, you know, I, I, I was talking to somebody the other week here, and I said, you know, I think probably... What, how would World War One or Two have turned out if we had CNN and the Internet and everything else at that time? Think about it, you know? Think about, think about Ike trying to go do D-Day when you have the CNN commentators ragging on him because he did this decision or that decision or why'd he go here or what's going on over there. Probably would have never won the war. I know you love Fox, but CNN and Fox... All of them. All of them, all of them, all of the above, every last one of them. Doesn't matter which one. Can you imagine Walter Cronkite and ABC News getting, as ABC was on or whatever it was, CBS Evening News, and just double, I mean, you know, I think there's a sense in which we have today information overload. We have information overload. Well, they even censored it back then. I mean, you know, I know on some of the landings in like Tarawa and things like that, they didn't publish the photos till after the war because of morale. You know, and, and I get some of that. But I mean, I'm just saying today, you've got all the cable news networks, you've got the internet, you've got people with iPhones taking pictures right away of things and events. You didn't have that 100 years ago. All right? And you got them on the internet, and you can see them anywhere, you know. And I'm just saying it's easy for us as Christians. We, we look around and we say, what's going on? I wonder if Jesus is still on the throne. I wonder if God's got control of this thing. Well, it is. It is. It's a show. It's propaganda. You know, it's, it's all propaganda. It's all a show. And what do you expect? What do we expect? In the end time, things are going to get better and better, right? Well, that's not what it says in the Bible. It says they're going to get worse and worse. So, you know, my challenge, you know, as I was just thinking about our prayer request today, is just like, you know, I... I I challenge myself and I all the time, you know, Lord, don't let me become so distracted about what's going on around me, I forget about you. Because it is, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to see an event and oh what's going on. And <clears throat> you know, I, I see it on stock market goes down, stock market goes up, gas prices go up, gas prices go down. And 
I mean, it's easy to become so embroiled in this. And I think one of the things that Christians can bring to the world right now is a sense of calm and peace. When everybody else is freaking out. We can sort of say, you know, we, have a, we serve a God who's, who's in charge of this thing. By the way, all of these, all this stuff that's happening with all these countries, God is bringing, he's lining it up for the end time, right? You want to get in God's way? <clears throat> that's our problem. We want it our way, right? Right. Yeah. Anything No, no. Providence. Providence is God in charge of everything. He's not making men do that. He did not force anybody to do anything. But God uses what men do to affect his eternal purpose. And it will all work out the way God wants it to. So the question is, am I going to cooperate with God or am I going to work against God? Yeah, he rolls over, overrules. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to steal that. I don't know, but it's good. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to, I'll give you a footnote. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be doing Romans 5 completely without any of my notes. So we'll see how we do here. Oh, my notes are at home in my folder that I didn't bring. Um, yeah, so with that, let's look at Romans 5 here in our time remaining. Um, again, Romans 5 picks up the whole um, results of being justified. Remember? God, uh, Paul's condemned all of humanity. We're all guilty before God. God's provided a way out through justification by faith. Why do you do it that way? So every, everybody's equal, right? Nobody gets an advantage. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, your race, your color, your creed, your whatever, where, gender, not. God doesn't care about any of that. How bad you were, how good you were, none of that. All that matters is do you come by faith? And he said, just to prove that, uh, Abraham came by faith, didn't he? Because the Jews were taught, no, Abraham earned it. He worked for it. No, Abraham didn't. And he actually goes back and quotes Genesis, their own law. Hey, go back and read your own scripture. What do you find? You find Abraham was justified before he was circumcised and was justified before the law came around. So it can't be by any one of those. David was justified, and on what basis was David justified? By faith. That whole Bathsheba incident, there wasn't a, a sacrifice for that. Uh, the law required death, and God forgave him. And then Paul turns in Romans 5 and says, Okay, now, now that I got your attention, and now that you have been justified... What's the results of that? You've been acquitted. The word there is to be acquitted. In the eternal heavenly court, God's gavel came down and says, not guilty. You're free to go. On what basis? By faith. In, by faith. 
Because somebody paid the penalty for your sin. Somebody took your place. And because we've been justified, what do we have? We have peace with God. What do we mean by that? And the war with God is what? Over. People say, well, I'm not at war with God. Yeah, but God's at war with you, isn't he? You're God's enemy. If, you're not, if you do not know Christ, you are the enemy of God. The Bible tells us that. Our flesh is at enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. It can't be. Romans 8. We are God's enemies. But because now we've been justified... The war with God is over, and we have now a state of peace with, between us and God. Where there's once a state of conflict, there is now a state of peace. The war is over. And not only that, what else do we have? We have access. We talked about that last week. What does that mean? I have access to the king. I can walk into God's presence. Stop and think about this thought. At any moment of the day, at any time, you can talk to the creator of the universe. When you pray, you don't get a busy signal. You're not put on hold. God does not say, take a number, and your number is 1,483, now serving one. You can talk to God at any time. And why do you have access? You have access because of who? Christ. He gave you access. He paid the penalty. I, I can now go into God's presence, which is quite a bit different than the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, how did you go into God's presence? You didn't. The only one that went into God's presence, in a sense, was the high priest once a year. But he didn't just go pop it into God's presence. Sacrifices. It was God was saying, I'm holy, you're not, stay away from me. But in Christ we have access. And we stand in this access. What does that mean? It's a that's a perfect tense. It means I have access and I continue to have access even now. It's not something that I get and I lose and I get and I lose and I get and I lose. I have it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. with his son. No. He is just and the justifier. Both. We have a relationship with him. But we stand in this grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? It's a present certainty of a future reality. Someday I will have it all. My justification has stopped the war between me and God. It's given me unfettered access to God. I stand in grace in a position of favor. And I rejoice that someday all of the promises that I have, the eternal life, the home in heaven, all of that's going to be mine someday. And then I can rejoice in my sufferings. See, we, again, as American Christians, suffering's a bad thing. We've got to you know, stop the suffering. Paul never asked for God to stop the suffering, did he? He said, help me to be faithful in the suffering. Let your... <clears throat> Suffering have its perfect work, James 1. Learning, whatever, State I am. 
suffering. You know, when you go through a great trial and you look back and say, wow, look how God brought me through that. Going through it is not a lot of fun. But when you look back and see God's faithfulness, what can you do? You can rejoice in your suffering. Why? Because God was faithful to you. See? God brought you through that. Some of us have faced great trials in our life, and we're here. Why? Because God brought us through them. And we can rejoice in that because the suffering produces endurance. What does that mean? To bear up under a load. It, it enables us to bear up under this thing. How do, you get, how do you get a body like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Eating donuts and pie and cake and watch TV? No, what do you do? You exercise, you bear up under a load. That's how you get that. You don't get it by just sitting around hoping that it comes to you. How do you become a great athlete? You work at it. You don't become a great golfer by watching Golf Channel all day long. You go out and hit the ball. How do you become strong? You endure trials. And as you endure these trials and you see God bringing you through them, what does it do to your faith? Yeah. See, our, here's the thing. Does God need me to prove to him that I'm a Christian? He knows that, right? Do you need to prove to yourself sometimes that you are? In a sense, yeah, you, don't, you do, don't you? How do you know Abraham was a man of faith? Because he did something. How do you know Rahab was a woman of faith? Because she hid the spies. How do you know Abel was a man of faith? Because he brought a sacrifice. How about Noah? Well, he built a boat. You do something. But when you face trials, it produces character. And character produces what? By the way, proven character there is the real deal. Dakamas. How do you prove something is the real deal? It's, it's the actual stuff. You put it to a test, don't you? How do you know that's gold? Well, we have a test for that. How do you know that's the genuine article? We have a test for that. You test it and you prove it. How do you know, how's our, how's our character proven? When we go through trials and we come out the other side, it gives us proven character. We bore up under the load. It's, it's yeah. Anybody can talk something. But when you go through it, and you come out the other side, and you see God's sustaining grace in your life, it's like, oh, Wow. It brings a reality to your hope. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to what? Shame. It doesn't let us down. It doesn't disappoint us. It doesn't disfigure us. It doesn't make us look bad. It, it, um, it proves it. It proves our character. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The idea of being poured out there is the Ice bucket challenge. It's dumped on us. God does not ration a little bit of sprinkles here and there. It's, it's poured out in us. His love is poured out. That's one thing about God. You know, God doesn't just, he's not a ration God. He doesn't ration things out. Well, I'll give you a little bit of grace and a little bit of this and just enough to squeak you by. It's lavish. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He lavished his riches on us. Yeah. Or sometimes God holds back because he knows we're not ready to handle it. I remember Al Algram always saying God could never trust him with a million dollars. 
Maybe that's why some of us are poor, because God couldn't trust us with it. I don't know. But this has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Think what God has done for us. You know, someday, and this is an amazing thing, we're going to read about this later on in Romans. We're not just an heir, we're a joint heir. What does it mean to be a joint heir with Christ? Yeah. There's no like, okay, you get the Porsche and you get the bank account and you get the... No, what, is, what do we get? Get it all. We don't inherit a little slice of heaven like, you know, I got a little hovel down on across the tracks in heaven. I get the whole deal. It's all mine. There's no private property in heaven, no lawyers, no deeds of ownership. We all get it all. We're a joint heir with Christ. Let's think about that. Everything that Christ inherits, we inherit. And this is the amazing thing in chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, if I remember correctly, the word weak there has to do with being without strength, without energy, sickly. While we were still in the state of being weak, at the right time, Christ died for what? The ungodly. One of the doctrines that's really under attack today is a substitutionary penal atonement. What does that mean? He took my place. It's not that he was a good role model for me. It's not because he uh, wanted to give me an example. He took my place. Um, he paid the full undiluted penalty for my sin. God the Father did not go easy on Christ. He took my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. And people don't like that today. They say, well, God would never do that. Why would God punish his own son for the sins of somebody else? Well, number one, did Christ do it unwillingly or willingly? Christ was not dragged to the cross against his will, folks. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This was a plan set in motion when? Before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Before time began, before there's anything in existence, this was the plan of God. It's not plan B, it's not plan C, it's not like, let's see if we can salvage this mess. It's always part of God's plan. And when did Christ do that? When did Christ die for me? When I was weak and sickly and I was ungodly. <clears throat> I was ungodly. On my, one of my walk meditations this past week, I was thinking... One of the struggles that I think we have as Christians is we see a lot of ungodly people out there. And that bothers us. It bothers me when I see a Congress who wants to pass a law to legalize abortion up to the point of birth. That angers me. It's ungodly. But then I thought about, if I'm an ungodly person thinking that's ungodly, what would a godly person think? Right? I'm fallen, right? And I think it's bad. So what does God think about it? Who's perfectly holy. If it's revolting to me, what's it, what's it like to God? And what Paul's saying here, when... I was ungodly, utterly repulsive in a sense. What did Christ do? He died for me. I was repulsive. 
He died for me. Up until then, since this whole breakout that Putin started, had become angrier by the day at Vladimir Putin. Yesterday, the Lord reminded me of Jonah and of Nineveh, how despicable, horrible, and terrible those people were, and he did not want to salvation but we know the story and ultimately he did and ultimately they got saved so the Lord said I want you to start today praying for the salvation of Vladimir Putin and I'm going to be doing that I started as of yesterday and I did it today and I'm going to be doing it every day okay fine just as Jonah thought that's going to be a waste of time not only do they not deserve salvation they're not going to hear me preach. Well, so I could say the same thing about Putin. May or may not be true that it'll, it's hopeless, but I don't need to worry about hopeless. No. I need to think about Jesus. It's not his will for any to perish. I need to think about for God so loved the world, and the world includes Putin. Yeah. I need to think about for me to live is Christ to die is gain. If somehow a nuclear plant does blow up next time another one gets hit and poof goes the world, I am home with Jesus at that point. Yep. I need to Peter, the water, the yeah. taking death, I need to keep my eyes on the one who is the bridge over troubled waters. Yeah. Yeah, um, when I was taking my walk last night, um, if you come over to my house or my area about midnight, you'll see me out walking the streets thinking. And um, I was thinking, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We do. Um, if nothing changes, where will, where will our nation's leadership be in a hundred years? Most of them. Where will they be? They'll be in hell. That's where they'll be. Do you want them there? See, we throw this around. We get mad at somebody when we say to them, go to hell. Do you really want people to go there? If you spent if you spent 15 seconds in hell, you'd want you wouldn't want anybody ever to go there. We need to readjust our thinking. You're right. God tells us to pray for our leaders. I don't like them. That's not the issue. The issue is I am to pray for them. Yep. Yeah. 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 I really don't want to see our leaders in hell. I want to. I really don't. Every Saturday night, I send out a prayer to the prayer team. This is what my prayer was last night. Dearest Lord Jesus, today you reminded me through your Holy Spirit that I was wasting my time being frustrated and angry with Vladimir Putin. You told me to start praying for his salvation 
and you reminded me that it is not your will for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And if that wasn't enough, you showed me 1 Peter 3, 9, about not paying back evil with evil, but instead to pay back evil with good. And then, Lord, on top of all that, you reminded me that vengeance is yours and that you will handle evil, and it was my job to be still and know that you are God. But you were still not done with giving me a good talking to because you reminded me of Paul's words that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You told me that my job on this planet is to pray and pray and pray while loving and loving and loving. And then, as I was at a traffic light today, that was yesterday, um, a young Hispanic man in the passenger seat pulled up next to me while a woman who was probably his mother was at the wheel. The young man appeared to be perhaps 18 years old or so. I paid no attention, of course, until he spoke to me with such love and kindness. Hello, how are you? While also waving. The woman at the wheel was smiling and not trying to restrain him at all. I responded, but with a slightly confused smile, hello, I said, not recognizing his face, we both looked away fairly quickly. I assumed he had made a mistake of assuming he knew me, but discovered he didn't. But then I rolled my window back down and asked if he was one of my students. When he asked, what school? I responded, ah, that's, that's okay. You would know what school if you really were one of my students. Then he said that he just wanted to greet me because people are not nice enough to each other these days as they should be and just wanted to spread joy and kindness. Then he said, God bless you, have a nice day. I returned the same blessing back to him. Then the light changed, the traffic light changed. That was you, Jesus, wasn't it? I came home and played praise music as my heart danced and sang before you. It's been many weeks since I have felt this free. I can relate to how Jonah felt about the evil people of Nineveh. But just as Jonah ultimately listened to you and prayed for them and they all got saved, I am now praying for the salvation of Vladimir Putin. Amen to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah. When did Christ die for us? Well, we hated him. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. Brutal people. Go back and read some of the history of the Assyrian Empire. One of the most brutal, bloody empires of all time. They raised torture to an art form. And I know there's part of Jonah that says, well, good. Hope God smokes them and have just a little crater where they were. And I hate to say it, but I think we are way more like Jonah than we like to think we are. We got to keep reminding ourselves that um, God's going to sort out the judgment. I am to pray for my leaders. I am to pray for those who hate us. What did Christ do? On the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So you got to get your eyes off of what's going on around you and get them back on Jesus and what He wants. Because, and, I, and one of the other things I prayed about last night, I was thinking as I was walking along, I am really glad God does not answer my prayers the way I think He should answer them. Are you ever glad of that? After the facts, like, man, if he would have answered it that way, it would have been a real mess to clean up. 
Well, we're still weak. We didn't have any strength. We were God's enemies, ungodly, to the point that we were revolting to God. He died for me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man. You know, it's all you can do to die for a good man, right? We've seen, we've seen people that die for others. You know, if you think like, uh, here's a really good, wonderful, awesome person who does a lot of good in the world, would you die for him? Think about it, but you know, yeah, yeah, you know. Now, let's get the world's rottenest person. Would you die for them? God shows up and says, okay, here, okay, look. It's you die or Putin dies. Which one? Think about it. That's what's going on here. Um, perhaps for a good man, some would die. For a good person, one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners. He died for us. We weren't God's friends. We were God's enemies. We hated him. We despised him, and he died for us anyways. And then we go around and we say, well, you know, I, I don't know, I don't like this person or that person. I wish God would judge them. When's God taking so long? When's the fire going to fall? That's what Jonah's... That's why he was outside the city you know, in Jonah 5. You know why he left Nineveh and, and sat outside the city. He was waiting for the fire to fall. He wanted to watch it. He wanted a front row seat to this whole deal. And when the fire didn't fall, how did he feel? He was mad. He wanted God to kill him. Wow. And you know what? I hate to say it, but I relate way more to Jonah. I'd like to think I do. Christ died for me when I was his enemy. He died for me when I hated him. He died for me when I was the most revolting, repulsive person he could think of. He died for me. And what you're going to find in the rest of this chapter, as we work through it, it's so amazing that he would do that. One of the things I was going to have you do when you go home, get a little piece of paper. I want you to find the much mores in this passage. In Romans 5, the much more. It's a key phrase here in Romans 5. Much more. The phrase much more. It occurs several times. This has happened, but much more this. He died for me when I was his enemy. And I think we need to ponder that. I think, you know, that, that prayer you did there, Sammy, I think we all need to take something like that to heart. Because, see, we look at the wind and the waves and wonder when God's going to judge and why doesn't God do this and why doesn't God do that. And God says, do you really want me to show up and judge? You really don't want that. It's not going to be a pretty sight. And you see that a little bit. There's a couple of instances. Remember, I think it's Ezekiel who was given a scroll to eat. And he said in his mouth it was what? Sweet as honey. When it got to his stomach, it was what? When you think of God's judgments, in a sense, there's a sweetness to it, right? God's finally vindicated. But there's a bitterness to it because a lot of people aren't going to fare very well. that we don't think deserve That's it. Right. And remember when God says, if I show up and judge, where do I start? At the house of the Lord. Yeah, I don't start with the sinners. I start with you all. 
Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. There will be consequences of the judgment that will occur here to higher society. Mm-hmm. And we can turn ourselves out of suffering. Yeah. Because see, our problem is our our version of justice is distorted by our fallenness. God's justice is perfect justice. And sometimes God will bring Joe in and, and, and we'll think, oh, Joe will be okay, and he gets smoked. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And God says, wait a minute, my justice is perfect justice. Nobody gets what they don't deserve. But we need to pray for our leaders and ponder this. Christ died for me when I hated him. When I was, think of the most repulsive human being on the planet you could think of. Would you die for that person? He did for me. Nobody gets the punishment they don't deserve, but you get the grace. Much more. Father, thanks for today and um, for this meditation. We need to be reminded of this, Father, that... Um, we are not the judges. You are. And uh, you died for us when we hated you. You died for us when we despised you. You died for us when we were repulsive. But you died for us anyways. Grant us a proper perspective on things, especially as we look around in the world today. You have a proper perspective on what you're doing and know that you're working all things out according to your own purposes and plans providentially. And help us to be women and men who are salt and light. Pray for our leaders and pray for those that we may not like. We're commanded to pray for them because you died for them as well. Thank you for this day and for the service to come in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.